This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I'm very excited for our guest today, uh, Jack Carr, who was supposed to be live in the studio with me, but unfortunately he got his first taste of Philly traffic uh, the other day um, and uh, wasn't able to get here in time, but I was able to watch him later that night um, and be with him as his new newly released book, In the Blood, hit number one on the New York best science, uh, New York Times bestseller list. So that was an exciting moment. And uh, I was happy to be there with you when, when we learned that news. Uh, Jack, welcome to The Resilient Life. Thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, that was crazy. Uh, uh, it hit that traffic and it was just one mile an hour to a dead stop, one mile an hour to a dead stop. And uh, yeah, while I was uh, get, heading up there to that event, I found out about the New York Times. Um, and so rushed on stage, barely made it, but uh, but made it and had a, a great event in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania. So um, sorry I missed you though in person. Yes. Yes. Well, we're, we're, thank you for going, by the way, thank you for being there uh, yes. making the time to actually come to that event and, uh, and seeing you there was fantastic. Well, it's, it's actually, it's, so I live right across the street from the university. Jack oh, was wow. at Delaware Valley university in Doylestown where the Travis Manning foundation is actually headquartered. And, um, so, and I was able, I've done events with, um, uh, when my book was released, I did events with Doylestown bookshop and they just do a fantastic job. And, you also uh, were interviewed by uh, Rich Zioli. I was on his show this morning. Oh, nice. I talked a little bit about Memorial Day. So we were talking about your book and your event. Um, so uh, great to make all those connections. And um, it was a wonderful event. And I, I will tell you, um, I've been to many events at that life science building at DelVal. And they have some big authors that come through. Really, they do a fantastic job of getting uh, big authors to come into our small town um, because they just do such a great job with how they work with uh, publicists and um, with editors and, and all of that. And uh, I was talking to Rich as we were, you know, before I called him and I said, oh, Jack's stuck in traffic. He's, I'm not going to be able to have him in the studio. But I said, I'm going to come over because I want to watch uh, your interview with him. And um, he said, yeah, well, how many does this building hold? And I said, it holds about a thousand, the auditorium. I said, but you know, typically I say, you know, they get about a couple hundred, which is a good showing. I walked into, I got there probably 635. I popped over. I thought I'd try to see Rich beforehand and it was packed. And the bookstore was like, uh, yeah, let's see if we can find a seat for you. I mean, the, the bottom, the upper level and I was blown away. I had to park on the side of the street. The parking lot was filled and you came in after me. So I'm sure when you pulled in, you were probably like, wow. Yeah. I was like, where am I? First I got lost. We got lost on the campus itself. And then, uh, and then I like look for the cars and we let, and we saw the cars. I'm like, I guess that it could be it, I guess. And then started walking over there and then sure enough it was, but uh, yeah, that was wild. I mean, it was, it was packed and ended up staying there till one in the morning um sign in for everybody and everybody was so kind and nice and they just you know wanted to wait in line so i was certainly you know not going to leave if they were waiting in line so um so we did that and had a great time and then i think my hotel was like an hour away because i had a 5 a.m flight back 
So back to that hotel and, uh, and then, uh, yeah. And then of course my, my room, I was locked out of my room somehow, but anyway, (laughs) I didn't get much sleep, but uh, but that was a great event. It was so, so wonderful. And the area was beautiful. I'd been up there in the fall three years ago, 2019 um, for a, uh, for an event at another college, but right around there, like within a, within a 20 mile radius. Yeah. Um, I think you're at Chestnut Hill. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, so it was different, you know, different season, obviously. So it, was, it had a different look. It was beautiful then. It was so beautiful, so green. And, and uh, it was amazing. I really, I really love that town. Amazing. Well, it's interesting. So those that are, live in and around the Philadelphia area, you know that every, you know, if people, wherever I go, people say, where are you from? And I say Philadelphia, because mm-hmm. the, the border of Philadelphia is literally eight miles away from where you were. Now, you wouldn't know that from your drive. But everybody kind of says, oh, we're from Philly. You know, we're from Philly. But really, there are these beautiful bucolic towns that surround the city of Philadelphia. And, um, you know, we're, we're lucky. I was lucky to uh, settle here in uh, right before high school when my dad got out of active duty. Um, he took a job with Johnson & Johnson. And someone said, oh, you know, he was working up in North Jersey. But they said, oh, a lot of people commute from Doylestown. And I remember we came up and, and when we first drove up, I'll never forget, we were driving and we were probably driving down the same road you were to get here. And then all of a sudden, we, it, you know, the, the traffic kind of sh- slimmed out and, and you see a lot of farms and a lot of land. And I was like, are we moving to the country? Because, you know, I'd grown up on military bases my whole life. And I'm like, where are we? You know? And so. Um, nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I loved all the roads that like just were, were driving on German to get there. And then there's the road that just goes off like a dirt road. And you're like, wonder where that goes. Or like, you know, like <laughs> goes off. I'm like, I wonder, I always love like wondering where these, where you can't see the house, you know, and it just goes off. And then yep. yeah, so many farms and a uh, really cool spot. Yeah. It's, it's been a great place to, it's been a great place to spend most of my adult life. And, um, and yeah, and I think you saw um, the reverence for, you know, an appreciation for, I, I would say that the military community as a whole, I was talking to Rich about this this morning, you know, we were talking about your event and, you know, just Memorial Day and what that looks like. And I said, you know, I, I know that, you know, Jack writes fiction books and of course people are invested in the character and, and all of that. I said, but at the end of the day, I think it also gives a broader analysis uh, that people want to hear stories of our veterans, right? They want to hear these stories, whether they're, you know, uh, nonfiction stories of uh, somebody's, in, and and most of, I would say most of our community as uh, they leave uh, service, they're writing nonfiction. Um, and so you are, you, you kind of went down a little bit of a different path, but at the end of the day, people are craving to hear these stories. And, and that for me, is important because I think it's so important that we continue to show this deep appreciation with less than 1% of our, our population serving, right? In the, in the military, that we at least show a reverence and appreciation for what the men and women in, in uniform do for us every day. Yeah, well, I think, in, in, and also, uh, uh, it's important now for kids to have heroes. I mean, it's always been important, but now there's so many other distractions out there. You know, 15 second TikTok brain. Uh, Wall Street Journal had an article on that not too long ago. I printed it out and gave it to our 11 year old to read. Um, but there's just so many distractions with with social media um, and so many influences that you can't control as a parent uh, that it's so important for someone to to crack a book and read about or listen maybe for this next generation. I think audiobooks are going to be a gateway for a lot of these kids um, just because they're so used to having something on a device and yeah. uh, and that's 
like a natural thing for them to do. I think maybe more natural, unfortunately, than an actual book, uh, but that's just how it, how it goes. And audiobooks are fantastic. It's the fastest growing segment of publishing, but to have heroes uh, and have someone to look up to that, uh, that went down range, that served and came back and is passing on a lesson, uh, I think is so important today. It's, it's, I mean, people have been passing along these uh, stories in the, in the oral tradition around a campfire, obviously, um, for, for millennia. And a lot of those stories focused on, uh, on warfare and on the hunt to pass along lessons to that next generation so they wouldn't be lost. Um, and then, of course, we have the written word, word came along. We start capturing those uh, on paper. And uh, a lot of those stories still come back to, uh, to passing on lessons. And a lot of those first-person accounts of people that went down range in Iraq, Afghanistan, other places around the world, um, that's, that's part of that first-person history. And that gives these kids today, let's say in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, high school, uh, somebody to look up to other than someone with a lot of followers on Instagram or TikTok or on Twitter or whatever else who might be bombarding them with uh, opinions about issues that they themselves did not take the requisite time, energy, and effort to actually study before forming an opinion. It's just a retweet from someone else uh, who is uh, who is angry or ill-informed or whatever it might be. And uh, and those those same platforms can be used so easily to divide us. And that division helps politicians and it helps the social media companies, obviously, because they want to influence our behaviors, whether that's buying habits or now actually influencing thought. Um, so so it's so important for for people to to write these uh, these accounts and it's their perspective. Uh, it's their perspective on their time in service on a certain mission, whatever it, it might be, um, but passing those on to the next next generation. So, um, so I, I think that they're so important, particularly maybe now more than ever. I would I would say now more than ever. And you know, one of the things we do at for the, for those that are listening that are familiar with the work at the Travis Manning Foundation, our biggest program is called Character Does Matter. So we actually train veterans to go out and mentor youth and uh, teach them about character, teach them about identifying their strengths and, and their, their top character strengths and how they can apply those. And, you know, I'll never forget when we started putting this program together and, and using their stories of leadership and service uh, in the military to create servant leaders in, in backyards across America, right? Mm -hmm. Not indoctrinating every kid to join the military, but rather showing like, hey, you know, whether you were in for two years or 10 years or 20 years, uh, our service members learned important fundamentals about service and leadership. It, it was just part of the job, right? And so the idea that they can pass those stories on, that they can uh, share their stories and also pass those stories on to our next generation, there is nothing more important than that. Yeah, and I think it also instills a sense of appreciation for that sixth grader, that seventh grader, that eighth grader, that high school student that uh, might not necessarily have a touch point with the military, uh, might not have a touch point with someone who served in Vietnam or served in Korea or served in World War II. And that generation obviously is not going to be with us much, uh, much longer. But uh, to have those stories captured uh, in books, um, it, it instills this appreciation. And what that does is allows them to take a breath and realize that, hey, I was, hand, I was given these freedoms, these options, these opportunities because of people from the inception of this country up until today who, who stood up and risked everything and in so, and in so many cases sacrificed everything um, so that I could have these. So uh, maybe I should put a little more thought into X, Y, or Z um, before voting or before uh, uh, tweeting my opinion or, or, or something along those lines um, and uh, or before siding with 
maybe a group that wants to undercut some of those freedoms, that doesn't appreciate uh, why we have them and what was sacrificed so that we can have them in this country. Uh, my daughter and I went to Pearl Harbor this last year for the 80th anniversary commemoration events. Uh, she's 16 and they're the, uh, we went with an organization called the Best Defense Foundation. They take veterans back to the battlefields, primarily World War II, um, on which they fought so they can say, say goodbye uh, to the friends that didn't make it home uh, so that they can make peace with what they did there. Um, and it, it's so powerful. And for her, I mean, she's heard me talk about our grandfather father was killed in World War II, um, but still to sit across the table from these veterans, and we took 64 veterans ages 96 to 104, and so you're getting them on and off the buses, getting to the events, getting to their rooms, getting to the dinners, making sure they're taking their medications, getting out of the wheelchairs, folding the wheelchairs up, getting them on the buses. Um, I mean, it was work, um, but to see her across the table from a 101-year veteran who was at Pearl Harbor, who was uh, essentially on the, was not essentially, was on the airfield when the first rounds, when they strafed the airfield, uh, dove into a sewage ditch, and he showed us the bullet holes in the runway, showed us the bullet holes that are still in the hangars there on Fort Island, and then shows us where he dove into this sewage ditch, which now is just a, a dry ditch, and then how he got up and ran to the water's edge and then watched these planes bank, drop down, and then drop the first torpedoes on Pearl Harbor. Um, and to see her listening to that story and see those veterans interact with her at age 16 gave her, I think, gave her an appreciation that uh, she wouldn't have gotten otherwise with all the distractions out there. I mean, she's heard me talk about all these things, but then to actually sit across from these guys and hear those stories and then hear how that guy who was, uh, who got strafed on the runway then went to fly the PBY, which is the uh, a float plane that has torpedoes on it, and then went to the Pacific Theater, sunk a Japanese submarine, helped sink a Japanese aircraft carrier, and then goes to the Mediterranean and sinks a German submarine. I mean, absolutely incredible. Um, so for them to share those stories with her, I think was life-changing. I'm sure it was, you know, I, I had read, I had read an article where you had talked about your grandfather and, you know, it, it, it dawned on me, this idea, you know, where a lot of focus right now for is, is on, you know, this post 9-11 generation. And, um, I lost my brother in 2007 he was the first lieutenant in the Marine Corps on his second tour of duty and, and killed by enemy sniper. And um, it was a life-changing moment as you know, it was the worst day of our lives. It, it completely changed the, the course of our lives. But, and I often talk about this idea that like, I grew up in a, a military household. I was born at, on a, in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, you know, moved all across the country. My dad was a Marine, uh, retired as a Marine Corps Colonel, my grandfather was a navigator on a B-17 bomber, flew, you know, 17 combat missions over Germany. And I had read the article where you talked about your grandfather and, you know, your grandfather had been killed. It was a Marine aviator killed in World War II. And I thought, you know, this, this idea that, you know, coming full circle, I, I, you know, I'm a gold star sister, you're, you're a gold star grandson. And, you know, I don't know how much you think about it in that respect, but it's so important, you know, for me, I always said, like, I, growing up, I understood what service was all about. I, I saw it with my dad. I understood that our life was different than a lot of kids. Um, um, and we had different challenges, but we also had different opportunities and we, were, we had different insight, but I did not fully understand what sacrifice meant until my brother was killed. And I didn't fully understand this notion of, you know, men and women 
giving their lives in service to our country. Of course, it was happening all around. And um, my brother had lost friends before he died. Um, friends he went to the Naval Academy with, um, you know, were some of the first Marines that were killed um, post 9-11. But it always felt like this needle in a haystack situation for me. Mm. And I always thought like, well, you know, and the vast majority, there's thousands and thousands. It's, it's not going to be my brother, right? Until mm -hmm. one day it was. And, um, and I wonder how we can draw in, you know, society that is not as connected to the military to fully understand those sacrifices. And, you know, when I think about it for myself, I didn't fully understand it until it happened to me. So how do we make sure that the rest of our country at least has uh, an appreciation for what these men and women do? Yeah, I think it's tougher tougher today with all the distractions out there and so many of the, the negative influences, not just for the for kids, but for society as a whole, um, because we're so distracted all the time um, and we don't really take take a moment to, to think about that very often. I mean, we have Memorial Day, obviously, and that's when most of the country thinks about it, but for for some of us, Memorial Day is really every day. Right. Um, so I think about, yeah, I think about my grandfather every day. I think about all the guys uh, that I knew personally who didn't make it make it home, obviously. Um, but uh, but if, I think people need to take a little more time than just on Memorial Day and just think about picnics and sales and, and barbecues and that sort of a thing um, to really understand and then talk about with their children about what, what it means, what that sacrifice means, what our responsibility is as citizens to those previous generations, what our responsibility is to your brother, um, to everybody that from the inception of this country up until today sacrificed so much because um, we do have a responsibility to them uh, and their sacrifice uh, I mean, it should not be in vain, but it might be if we just give up without a fight, all those things that they sacrificed for. Um, so, so thinking about that is something that, uh, I mean, I think about it every day. Uh, it, 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 it finds its way into my, my novels, weaves its way into the storylines um, very naturally. Um, and it weaves its way into my normal everyday conversation, or I try to make it, bring it up very naturally with the kids. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't have to, to, to end up forcing it with my daughter anymore. She, she asked last night, she asked for this, uh, uh, this, this thing I made, gosh, years ago, 30 years ago, I took the silk maps that they gave my, uh, gave aviators back in world war II. Cause if you hit the water with a paper map, it would disintegrate, but a silk map still works. It just gets wet. Um, so I took one of the, one of the three that I have, that was my grandfather's and I put it in a shadow box. And I think I did that when I was maybe 17, 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there, um, that I put his medals in there, put his Marine Corps aviation wings in there, put the little, uh, the leather patch that was on his flight jacket or uh, right, that, that's in there. Picture of him and his squadron is there. Picture of him and his Corsair aircraft is in there. Uh, and we moved recently. So everything's in boxes everywhere. And she asked, asked me where that was. And I was like, oh, I think it's, it's in, it's in a box in the garage. We're going to go find it. We're still unpacking kind of. Um, but she's like, I'd like to put that in my room. So I was like, oh, well. So that'll be going in her room shortly. And she can't wait to get to, we're going to Normandy here in a few days. I saw um, that. With that same, with that same group. And she can't wait to see her, uh, you know, hundred year old friend, Andre, who she's <laughs> looking forward to seeing again and, uh, and being there on the, the beaches of Normandy with. So, um, so that's pretty, pretty special. So we'll go there with that same organization and help these guys uh, the same way we did at Pearl Harbor. And, uh, you know, she'll have another, another touch point. And a lot of them probably won't be around for the, for the next anniversary. I, I think you, I think you said it well when you said, you know, I, I keep using the word appreciation, but I, I think much better said responsibility, right? And I think that is, that's the perfect word to to say. It's 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 our responsibility 
Um, it's our responsibility as, you know, gold star grandson, gold star sister, as service members, as, as military families to, to keep the word, but it's also the responsibility of each and every American to, to understand. And, you know, and I think that, you know, drawing back to you as an author and the path you chose after uh, leaving the Navy as a, as a Navy SEAL, um, you knew you always wanted to do that. But, uh, but taking that path and saying, like, I'm going to put pen to paper, I'm going to share a story, I'm going to share a story, and I'm going to make sure that it surrounds, you know, the veteran community. And one of the things I'd heard you say, and, you know, of course, I did my research, so I'm watching a bunch of different interviews, I don't remember which one it was from. But you, you had said, you know, people just need to stop tweeting and start reading. And I wrote it down right away. And I was like, that. I mean, th that should be tattooed on every American right now, like stop tweeting and start reading. And, you know, it, it is this idea that we just have misinformed people putting out quick bites um, and people taking them for fact, not doing their research, not understanding the background, the history of so many things. And it is, it's corrupting society. I mean, it is a, it is a, when you want to talk about systemic problems, within our country. That's a systemic problem within our country. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, I came up with that one in the hot seat on Tucker. I didn't even think about it. Ahead oh, that's of time. what it was. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But I, uh, but I was, I just came to me as I was sitting there in the chair. Um, Cause you get like two and a half minutes on those things. And if you yeah. mess it up, you can't go back. Like on this, we can go back and say, Oh, you know what I said five minutes ago? Yeah. You know what I really meant was well, this. I'm not sure that came <laughs> off quite right. Yeah. There's no second takes. Like you are in and it's a minute and a half. It's maybe two minutes, two minutes, 30, like tops. Um, and it's crazy. And sometimes they switch things up on you at the last second. You're not even talking about what you thought you were coming on to talk about. But uh, but yeah, I just thought about that in the chair, and it seemed to make uh, make so much sense. Just because we, I mean, we, we when you just tweet something so quickly, or you read uh, however many characters you're allowed to put in a in a tweet, a sentence or two, um, that really doesn't lend itself to uh, to deep thought about any of these more contentious issues of the day, and in fact leads to more division, towards misunderstanding, um, and uh, and towards this back and forth bitterness that you see devolve into chaos online on these platforms that aren't set up at all to uh, to uh, kind of formulate and uh, encourage a, a thoughtful discussion uh, about things. Uh, the exact opposite is true. So, uh, so yeah, stop tweeting and start reading. I might put that on a coffee cup or a shirt. I think, I think you should. I think that would be a big seller for sure. <laughs> you know, and I, and I wonder too, like, you know, we're in a super tumultuous time as a nation. And, and I mean, it just seems like every day things get worse. Right. And, and I often wonder like, how do we find common ground as a society? And, you know, I, I talk about a lot that the idea of the military, right. And what the military represents when you think about it, you know, our military is the most diverse collection of individuals that represents this country. And so you have people from all walks of life, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, different races, and they all come together to work towards a common goal, right? Yeah. And so like, how do we replicate that for the rest of society? Like, is there a way to take that practice of what happens within the military? And listen, the military has its own set of issues, but collectively, when you look at it as a whole, there's no other group in America that is more diverse 
that comes together and, and accomplishes their mission. And, you know, whether or not they, they ultimately agree with every step and action and decision, they are going to follow and lead and work together. And, and, and I wonder, like, is there a way to find that common ground as a society as a whole, or, you know, are we just doomed to just this rhetoric that, that just drowns our television screens and our social media every single day? Yeah, it's tough. My wife and I sit down at the end of the night in the couch and you have a glass of wine or something and talk about the day. That's uh, something that uh, we think about a lot. And I try to remain hopeful, especially especially publicly. But what used to bind us all together as Americans was really that First Amendment, because whatever you thought of the Second Amendment or you thought of other things out there, other contentious issues of the day, uh, what really drew us all together was the First Amendment. And we used to say, hey, I will stand up and fight and die for your right to say something, especially if I disagree with you. That's the foundation of this country, um, because that allows us to discuss things in this marketplace of ideas and the best ideas percolate to the top and allows us to be stronger as a society, as a country going forward um, and allows us to build, continue to build on these foundations of freedom. But really over the last few years, we've seen that get weaponized really for the first time and uh, or in, in the first time in the way that it has been. Um, so instead of binding us together as Americans, being that one foundational element that binds us all together, we have seen uh, segments of society, we've seen politicians, we've seen the traditional guardians of that First Amendment from reporters and uh, magazine newspaper editors, uh, authors, lawyers um, that used to stand there. They used to be the, the guardians. And now they are actively calling, in many cases, uh, for censorship, for, for canceling people. So instead of debating ideas, they just want to silence the other side. And that is a distinct shift from what we've seen in the past, uh, where those same people would stand up for your right, my right, to, to say something, especially if we disagreed. Like that's the one thing that we agreed upon. Um, and now that's been weaponized, just like everything else is looked at as a way to politicize, weaponize, divide. Um, and who does that? Our politicians do it. Who does that? Large sections of the segments of our, of our media. Who does that? Our tech companies. Um, and uh, that 1% that people like to talk about, that same 1% seem to be the ones that are actively calling for these things that undermine that First Amendment. So that's a change. Um, so if we can get back to standing up for one another, rather than wanting to cancel one another, especially if we disagree with one another. Um, but once again, that takes thought. That takes going back and thinking about what was sacrificed so that we can have that First Amendment here and not be silenced. Um, and But that takes you uh, getting off TikTok getting off Twitter, really going into some of the pages of the history books and uh, thinking back on some of these things and understanding why we have them in the first place in this country and how, how those freedoms allowed us to become this country that is the most, one, most powerful in the world, but also the one with the most opportunity in this world where you have the right to make these decisions. And yeah, you know what? You might make some bad ones. Uh, you might make some good ones, but you can learn from both and move forward um, without being, being having your life dictated to you by, by a government or by your station in life uh, where you're born. So, um, so that used to be one. And then, you know, uh, thinking about some sort of service, uh, compulsory service, and people don't like to talk about that, um, don't like to support that, but I will tell you, we would be a much I stronger like country 
<laughs> if we had something, you know, uh, something, some sort of a common, um, like throughout history, there have been uh, these tests, these crucibles that people had to go through really to be accepted into the tribe and community. Um, and in modern times, that's Marine boot camp. Um, that's our Army Special Forces Q course. That's sealed. That's buds. Uh, that's something. You know, people are especially between the ages of eighteen and like twenty-two. You know, they're looking for that test, um, and it's a very natural thing to look for. And it's really been a part of society from the beginning of time. Um, but if we had some sort of a some sort of service that allowed us to all have a, a common uh, foundation, like buds. I have that same thing in common with someone who went through in 1972, right. 1985, 1993, and I'll have it in common with someone who goes through a year from now, 10 years from now, we'll share that common experience. So something where we invest in our nation, um, because once you're invested in that nation, you're more appreciative of what was sacrificed so you can make your own decisions going forward. So we've lost that with entitlement culture. We've been very comfortable in this country for quite some time, the vast majority of us. Um, we've thought of society as not very fragile when in fact, for most of human history, society has been very fragile. So having some sort of a, a common service that we do uh, that binds us all together as Americans would for sure make us a stronger country. I don't know if we can ever get to something like that, um, because once again, that can be weaponized by politicians too, uh, and uh, and weaponized by by social media companies to continue to influence our thoughts and behaviors. But uh, if we did have that, we would be a much stronger country um, because you'd be invested in it. That sweat equity, um, it hasn't just been handed to you by generations who went before, who sacrificed and risked so much. Um, uh, well, guess what? Now you're investing in it. Guess what? You have to invest in this place. Uh, and that's going to make you appreciate what you have. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I've, I've said it several times on the show, um, the need for uh, mandatory service. Um, and it doesn't have to be military. I mean, it, I, I don't think that it has to be military service, but, you know, uh, galvanizing different groups, Peace Corps, um, you know, um, AmeriCorps, but, but requiring two years of mandatory service for every American, it, it, that is, it's, it's your investment in this country and, and that you hold so dear. And, you know, and you, you said entitlement culture, like it, you see what's been created with lack of that. Right. And when we, during World War II, my dad likes to talk about it all the time because we talk about the veterans that we're bringing back into communities through the Travis Manning Foundation. You know, we're putting them in schools. We're making sure that they're working with youth groups. They're working with sports teams. They're working with different schools because, you know, during World War II, when your grandfather and my grandfather were serving, they were not unique. They right. were they were the, they were the majority. And you know, my dad says when when he was growing up, his baseball coach was a veteran, the butcher down the street was a veteran, his teacher was a veteran. So it was in you know instilled in them from a very young age. It was what they knew, and um, and that has crept away so slowly that I think we have you know, failed to actually see the detriment that it's brought to our society. And it has created this culture of entitlement where people think they can, you know, they, they, they are owed everything, but they have to pay nothing uh, yep. for that. And, um, you know, and, and when you talk about, again, this idea of cancel culture, I'll never forget, it was probably within weeks of Travis dying, there was somebody and high profile individual, female, 
um, who I was in conversation with. And she said, you know, I, I am deeply sorry to hear of your brother's loss. And, and then she went off on this tangent about um, how we invaded Iraq under false pretenses and, and, you know, gave her, gave her opinion on, on the situation in Iraq and then said, you know, it, it's a shame that all these young men are dying in vain. And it caught me. And, you know, I, again, she was someone that uh, was well-known and respected. And, and regardless of that, I, I just turned to her and I said, you know what? I said, and, and my brother died to give you the right to say everything you said, whether or not I agree with you or not, uh, that's what he sacrificed for. And if you flash forward to today, that could have been anybody else who lost their brother and, and that same situation was said, and they could have videotaped them, threw them up on social media, had them on Twitter, and that person would have been, you know, canceled in two seconds. Um, but we don't want that as, as a nation. We don't, we shouldn't want that as a society. We should want people to feel free to express their thoughts and express their opinions and not feel like they have to be keyboard warriors behind the computer on Twitter, um, making these quick quips that, um, that are fracturing to, to, to us as a country. Yeah, no, it doesn't lend itself to, to, to thoughtful discourse. That's for, that's for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a tough time in our country. I think it's next 10 years are going to be very, very pivotal uh, when it comes to uh, future generations. And really we're not making these decisions today for us. It's really for our children, for our grandchildren, for these future generations. So we need to think of these things in those terms as well. Um, hey, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about this next generation. We are uh, safeguarding these freedoms for them. And what does that mean? It means we should probably put the requisite time, energy, energy, energy effort, and thought into it before we take away these freedoms that were sacrificed, uh, where people sacrificed so much. Uh, to instill the, made sure that we have them. So uh, that's what we owe the next generation. Um, so I try to talk about that as much as I can. Unfortunately, uh, you know, social media really drowns, it doesn't lend itself to, uh, to even thinking in that, in those terms. Uh, it's all about me. It's all about entitlement. It's all about today. Uh, well, guess what? Today impacts tomorrow. And what does tomorrow impact? Future generations. So there's a lot to think about. We have a lot of responsibility on our shoulders as citizens. And uh, without that appreciation, without that, uh, that common foundation of, of service of, uh, of that First Amendment, uh, we're losing it. We are losing it. So uh, I try to do my part through the novels, whatever platform that I have. But, uh, uh, you know, more and more people need to turn off, turn off Twitter and really crack these pages, pages of the history books, uh, because we learn so much. There are, there are lessons there that we need to take and apply going forward as wisdom. And we don't necessarily do that in this country. We think in terms of four-year election cycles, eight-year election cycles for the real deep thinkers among us. And, uh, and the people that are thinking in those terms are thinking more now uh, in terms of ways to divide, to galvanize a base, to ensure that they can stay in power. And uh, unfortunately, that's where we find ourselves. So the question becomes, what do we do about it? Um, and, you know, for us, as uh, for me as a parent, um, it's, it's what can I, who can I influence uh, in my family? Uh, it's that, it's that next generation, it's those kids. Now, who can I influence in whatever sphere, whatever circle that I have? Um, and if, if anything, I would just, I would, I would love for people to take a breath and, uh, and really put a little more thought into, uh, into what they do and think about it in terms of future generations and, and not the me of today. Yeah, I love that. All right, well, let's talk about some happy stuff, some good stuff. There is some good stuff going on in this country today. And uh, that starts with, again, you've got your book, 
uh, New York Times bestseller. Uh, but you also have uh, a really cool thing. Your first book, The Terminal List, has been made into a series, which uh, debuts on Amazon on July 1st. Yeah. Chris Pratt, uh, Antoine Fuqua as another executive producer of the project. And, um, you know, I think The Equalizer was actually, was that filmed in Philadelphia? I'm pretty oh, sure. I'm pretty nice. sure it was. Don't quote me on that, but I feel like there were parts of that that was. He definitely has some Philly ties for sure. Nice. He's um, so great. He's so fantastic. And, and he, yeah, he directs and uh, executive produces along with me and with Chris. Um, and he's just such a fantastic person. Before uh, I knew him, I was like, oh, this is just a great director. And this is who I want to direct. Um, yeah. But I know him. I mean, a visionary creator and just a great, genuine person. Like, I can't say enough good things about him. But I've never shown this before because I, I just got home yesterday. And okay. This was waiting for me. So this is the new cover to it is a hardcover of awesome. uh, the first book with Chris Pratt on the cover it's crazy and in this one i write a new foreword that talks about how the movie or how the series came about how the first book came about and then there's some exclusive pictures in here and they don't usually do this with books usually they put up a they put they do this which is the paperback this is waiting for me too so they do this usually but uh this time uh they did a hardcover with photos inside exclusive photos from the set with a new forward um so the new forward and photos aren't in this one but are in the special collector's hardcover so i just got home to it but i've never shown anybody because i just opened it you know a few hours ago essentially so uh yeah so that's, that's it awesome. yeah. Uh, Chris just happened to FaceTime yesterday to talk about uh, some things. And, um, and I told held this up. I'm like, look, buddy, you're right here. You're on a hardcover. And oh so he God. was super, uh, he was super fired up about that. I mean, that has to be a little surreal for you, right? Like I, you, you have to, at some point, take a step back and be like, oh my gosh, I'm holding my book that I started writing. You said you started writing it while you were on terminal leave, getting out of the seals. Yep. You're writing this book, the terminal list. And then fast forward, you're holding Uh, the new cover with Chris Pratt's face on it because the series is about to be released. I mean, do you ever just stop and think like, holy crap. I haven't stopped really ever. Um, so I might, <laughs> I might need to like, take a breath for a second, especially now that this is the end of a book tour. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then the last book hit New York Times list and then this thing arrives and then the press is starting to kind of wind up for, for the Terminalist show. And Chris, of course, has Jurassic World coming out and then he's in Thor. So in a 30 day period, he has all these, these three things dropping. He's in Thor with Chris Hemsworth because it's the, you know, the Avengers thing and yep. Guardians of the Galaxy thing. So he's got a lot going on, but he's such a, such a great guy. But uh, what's crazy is that, so I started writing it the first book during like my last year because I dropped my papers and then I go in that other pile where I have to go and go to dental and medical and get read out of secret programs and turn in gear and, you know, all that sort of a thing. Um, so I started, uh, started writing it really then, but, uh, but I thought of Chris Pratt playing the role, which is odd because he hadn't yet been in Guardians of the Galaxy. He was not an A-lister yet. He was, he was, uh, he was working his way in that direction, but, uh, but he'd been on Parks and Rec, lovable Andy Dwyer. And I mean, then, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he was in Zero Dark Thirty as a SEAL, the movie about the Bin Laden raid. And I saw that transformation from Andy Dwyer to SEAL operator. And I was like, hmm, I think this is the guy. I wanted someone who hadn't, of course, I have no connections to Hollywood, no connections to, uh, uh, to New York Publishing. I'm just typing away in our little office off the bedroom in Coronado, California. Um, but as a child of the 80s, it was very natural for me to think of someone portraying my character. And I thought Chris Pratt. And I thought Antoine Fuqua 
directing. Um, and I thought Emily Bessler, Simon & Schuster, my publisher and editor. Um, and all those things ended up happening. But the way Chris got it is a friend of mine from the SEAL teams, and here's the, the military connection part, is a friend from the SEAL teams calls me out of the blue, and I haven't talked to him in five years. His name is Jared Shaw. And, uh, and he calls me out of the blue in November of 2017, a few months before the book comes out, and says, uh, hey, do you remember me? And I said, Jared, of course I remember you. How's it going? And he said, it's going great. But uh, man, I always wanted to call you and thank you for what you did for me in the SEAL teams. Um, you, you're, and I, he asked me what that was, if he, I remembered, and I did not. And he said, you sat me down. You talked to me about transitioning out of the military. You introduced me to people in the private sector. No one else cared enough to do that. Uh, and I always wanted to thank you. And I said, no problem. Uh, and he said, I heard you have a book coming out. I said, yeah, it's coming out in a few months. So I can send you a galley copy, which is like an early rough draft. And he said, yeah, I'd like that, but I'd also like to give it to a friend of mine. And I said, who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's convenient because that's who I yeah. pictured <laughs> playing this role. Uh, and so he gave it to Chris and uh, Chris read it in the end of December, 2017 and, and uh, called the next week and wanted to option it and star in it. So wow. um, yeah, crazy, crazy. That's, that's awesome. Um, you know, one of the things that you've said, and I heard you talk about it the other night, you, you talked about like, you knew you were going to go into the military, but you knew right away that, that you were going to serve in the military and then you were going to write. It wasn't like, oh, I just kind of developed this passion for writing, or I wanted to share stories. And I learned like, that was what you wanted to do. Your mom was a librarian. Um, you wanted to write and I'd love to hear, and that's not typical. That is not the typical transition story for a veteran. Uh, they don't know that I would say a vast majority have no idea what they're going to do when they get out. And, you know, I'd love to hear from you, your advice on people who may be reinventing yourself themselves, because at the end of the day, you know, you knew what you wanted to do, but you were reinventing yourself. You were going from Navy SEAL to fiction author. Um, that, and, and I doubt that you had many people, if any, that you could turn to, to be like, I know you went from being a SEAL to a fiction author. Let's talk about what that process looked like. There was, there, there was no roadmap for that. No. Um, you know, so how have you found your way in a different world as, as an author, but still maintained your identity? Yeah, well, I'm actually glad there wasn't a roadmap. Um, and the same thing with not having a background in any of these things that I have to do as an author today, which is the, the business side of it. I didn't realize that even existed. I thought I could just go to the mountains and write and send a manuscript to New York and maybe do like a morning show and then go back to writing. Like I thought that was it. Yeah. Uh, that was, and it was very appealing to me also because uh, just by nature, I'm very uh, private. Uh, and you might not think that by the, the social media presence and everything that I, that I do now, but that's all in support of, of the books and all, um, all because of, uh, because I didn't have a background in these sorts of things. So I couldn't go back and say, oh, when I worked at Nike or when I worked at Google or when I, you know, my last business, uh, this is what we did and this worked. And yeah, I had zero best practices, zero lessons learned, but all I did was look at uh, the landscape the way I would look at the battlefield, um, capitalizing on momentum, adapting, looking for gaps in the enemy's defenses, wondering how they're going, not wondering, but thinking through how they're going to adapt to what I do and then do it faster than they're doing it. Um, so I just looked at the changing landscape uh, and realized, hey, what can I do that uh, that it ha hasn't been done or that I, that authors couldn't do say in 1985? Uh, and there's a lot. There's a lot you can do today as an author that you don't have to rely on your publisher for, that you don't have to rely on legacy media for. One of the things is what we're doing right now is just uh, having a conversation here and then sharing that with uh, with an audience. So, um, so there were all sorts of things like that. But going back to the military transition part, I was very uh, fortunate 
in that I knew from a very early age that I would serve my country in uniform and then I would write thrillers. And a lot of that I think is because there wasn't the internet, there wasn't TikTok, there wasn't Instagram. Uh, guess what there was? There was Atari 2600 that you can only play for, for so long. Uh, and then there was the library um, and there were books. And I was studying from a very early age, uh, anything on warfare, on terrorism, on insurgencies, on counterinsurgencies, um, on SEALs in particular, after I found out what they were uh, and realized that this is my path. These are my people. Uh, I'm gonna test myself in buds and 80% uh, of the people don't make it. That's part of the draw. I want to test myself in this crucible and serve my country as a special operator. Um, but at the time, you could exhaust pretty much everything ever written about SEALs in a couple hours uh, in the early 80s. And uh, if you wanted to learn more, guess what there was? Well, there were thrillers. And a lot of the thrillers back then had protagonists with backgrounds in Vietnam, particularly as uh, Marine snipers, as, uh, as Army Special Forces guys, as CIA paramilitary officers and as Navy SEALs. That was like the typical 80s action hero, thriller hero background, because it allowed gave them a foundation from which to do the things that they were doing in the novels. Uh, so I'd read those books by Tom Clancy, by David Morrell, by Nelson DeMille, by AJ Quinnell, Jason Pollock, Mark Olden, Stephen Hunter, um, all these guys who had protagonists like that and storylines with characters that had touch points with the military. And I just loved them. And uh, I knew that one day I would write thrillers uh, of the same kind. And, uh, and that was always my path. And I never deviated from that, from knowing that I would serve my country in uniform. And when that time was up, then I would write thrillers. Uh, so I was fortunate that I knew what I wanted to do. But for those who don't, I think it's so important to be able to articulate, to think through what your passions are uh, and what your mission is in life, and then be able to put those two together, which really forms your purpose going forward. And I saw so many people try to leave the military. And now I see it here in Park City with uh, Olympic athletes who have been devoted to a team, whether that's a team sport or individual, it's still still part of this team uh, and been so focused on that for the longest time. And then maybe they don't make the team. Maybe they get injured or maybe they just age out of it, need to, need to go on. And they're making a transition very similar to one from the military. You see it with people in professional sports. You see it um, with people with a, a divorce, the death of a loved one, changing any job. Uh, any sort of transition in life. Um, and so for me, I was very fortunate in that I knew my passion was writing. I knew my mission was taking care of my family. So I got to put those two together and that forms my purpose going forward. So I was very clear that it was time to leave the military behind, make a, a clean psychological and physical break. So we moved up to, to Park City, moved out of Coronado, California, which is a very SEAL-centric community. Um, and, uh, and it was time to, time to move on and build on that foundation. And I think I saw a lot of people that had a foundation, but instead of building upon it, they stayed stuck in it. Like the, their feet were stuck in the cement and they just couldn't pull those feet out of there because being in, in special operations in particular um, was uh, such a powerful experience because they were downrange next to their best friend. They were solely focused on the task at hand. Uh, they weren't worried about anything else. And that's what you have to do. You have to be solely devoted to that task at hand because that's what you owe the person to your right and left. It's what you owe their families. It's what you owe the country, the, the mission. So, uh, so it's hard hard for people to make that that transition because I think they have a hard time thinking through what their passion is and what their mission is and then putting those two together. So I saw the importance of doing that um, as I was getting out because I saw a lot of people transitioning from my, my peer group or people that maybe were a little bit older leaving the military and not yet know what that passion was and what that, that mission was and not realizing that hey, good experiences in the military, bad experiences in the military um, 
you can build on all of it. It's all a foundation, just like anything else in life. And you can either build on that foundation or you can stay stuck in it. And um, so that was something that, uh, that I recognized and still feel extremely fortunate to have identified early on and, uh, and then to be doing what I'm doing today. Yeah. And I think about it from the perspective that, you know, what you went on to do is not something that is easily, easily attainable or successful. I mean, you could have written that book and you could have sent it around and, you know, not heard from anyone, right? Like you had no reassurance that this was going to work. So I give you a lot of credit for, again, I know you knew what you wanted to do, but you ultimately took a pretty big risk to say, I'm going to become a, a thriller writer, right? Like there is no assurance that that is going to sustain your family and, you know, capture all the financial needs that you, that you ultimately need. So um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Uh, You know, I, I follow you on social media. So I see um, obviously your deep love of literature and, and authors. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is like, and it may be hard. I, I assume you've been asked before, but like, what is your favorite book or perhaps like the book that has had the most impact on you? Yeah. So there's a, other than the Bible, there are five. Um, and I talk, I have a reading list that I put out every, uh, it used to be every month. I missed the last two because it was so crazy. I did this last month actually with all the books that I'd use for research for this latest novel for In the Blood. But uh, every month I was picking six books and I'll get back to it here soon. Uh, but I think maybe drop down to like three because six books is a lot just to write up uh, a little couple paragraphs on. Yeah. And, and it's not out there. So people actually read the six. It's hey, here's some options, you know, pick one that right. speaks to you type of a thing. But uh, there's a book called Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. And uh, uh, I'm sure your dad has read it. And uh, it is, uh, it, it's written in 1968. And it follows, it's historical fiction, but it follows two guys from right before World War One up to Vietnam. And one is a, uh, starts out as an officer. The other one starts out enlisted, gets a battlefield commission in World War One, And they follow each other throughout this, uh, the after World War One, in this interwar period, uh, after World War Two, up to Vietnam here, and uh, it juxtaposes really their time in uniform. So the guy that started out as an officer is like a staff guy, and he is a little bit ahead of this combat leader uh, the whole time. And but what it really is, you learn a ton about history being historical fiction very approachable uh the only thing that makes it not approachable is if you look at the size of it it's uh it can be also be used as a blunt impact weapon or as a doorstop (laughs) because it's an investment in time Uh, but it's really a case study in leadership and uh the 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 central theme to the novel and the takeaway is really to see to your character and your reputation will take care of itself and I used to give that book to SEALs coming up behind me in the SEAL teams. And I put a letter in the front and I would, in that letter, I would frame why I was giving them this book. And then I would say, there's a letter at the end and that one would be sealed. And I tape that to, to the back cover. And, uh, but they couldn't read that. They couldn't open that letter until they made it through the book. And that letter has my take on what they just read because I didn't want to pollute their reading experience with my thoughts on it ahead of time. So, uh, so that's my most gifted book out there. And uh, yeah, Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. And then, uh, then the others that uh, Winds of War and War and Remembrance by Herman Woke, those once again, go back to it's historical fiction, um, but it's approachable and so well written. 
And it really also instills that appreciation that we talked about earlier, because it's the pre-World pre War II and through World War II, through the eyes of a family and all that they sacrificed along the way. So it's multi-generational involved in World War II. Um, so those two are, are fantastic. And then uh, Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Um, I think that that rounds out my, my top five, but my, uh, my most gifted book is for sure Once an Eagle. Love it. Well, I'm I'm sure uh, that'll pick up in a, a little bit of sales once we we'll, we'll make sure we we link it to um, when we put this out. Uh, so I always end uh, the podcast with asking uh, our guests the same question. Um, you know, this this podcast is called the Resilient Life. Um, my my life took a, a drastic turn on April 29, two thousand and seven, and you know I talk a lot about resiliency. I talk a lot about that. Um, publicly and, you know, what that journey has looked like for me. And I always want to know from each guest that we interview, like, what does living a resilient life look like for you? Yeah, so it's one of those attributes that is one of the most critical uh, for any for any citizen. But when we're talking about special operations or the military, um, it's a requirement. Um, and it's really one of the things they're testing for in Marine Boot Camp, in the Army Q course, in BUDS. Um, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a way to test people to find out if they have that resiliency um, that's going to allow them to be then part of this team and add to it and add value to it going forward. But uh, but it's not just the military. It's Your, your life is going to hit you. It's going to hit you hard. There is no way around that. No matter what station you're born in in life, you're going to take some hits and you're going to get knocked down. And then eventually you have to get back up. Like that's not an option. Like you have to get back up. Uh, but the way you get back up is what you decide how long you're going to stay down and then how you get back up and you can get back up in a way that is, uh, is you're whining and, and you're, you're crying about things, talking about how life was unfair to you, or you can get up in a way that inspires those around you. However big that circle is, whether it's just a, a spouse or children or whatever it might be. Um, but you get to decide that part. You get to make an active choice on how you're going to get back up. So um, yeah, the, the being resilient is as a, as a citizen, as, a, as, a, as someone in the military, that is one of the most important attributes that, uh, that we can all have. So being resilient. And for past generations, they didn't have a choice. Like they had to be resilient. Uh, Great Depression into World War II, right into World War II, uh, and think about what people went through before those times. Uh, look at life expectancy before, you know, uh, leading up to today. Um, you had to be resilient if you were going to survive, especially if you're going to not just survive, but prevail. And really, it's not just about surviving in life, it's about prevailing. I love it. Jack, thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation. Appreciate your time. Excited to check out the terminal list on July 1st on Amazon and to dive into your newest book in the blood. Thank you so much for joining us on The Resilient Life. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. Jack, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for, for all you do for freedom. Thank you.